I just wanted to begin uh, by saying how honored I am to be here with all of you, and particularly be here with Wilston, uh, who's dedicated so much uh, of his life to working with this text and other uh, traditional materials that are so valuable uh, for the uh, people that are <coughs> like me, who are just regular old practitioners. <laughs> so uh, I'm not a, a scholar, uh, and I'm not that knowledgeable, but I happen to love this particular text. Uh, it is so beautiful, it brings tears to my eyes. Mm. Uh, in the section where Shantideva is talking about making the offerings, the way he talks about the phenomenal world with such love and tenderness and uh, appreciation of the richness and uh, variety of the, both the natural world and the human um, creativity and uh, beauty. It's, uh, you know, it, it's so powerful and so rich. And uh, it's a point I always come back to myself, of starting with the amazement to find myself in a world that is so profoundly odd hmm. and beautiful and powerful. It's like laid out. It's like a, uh, this splendid offering that's freely given to all of us and that we mostly don't take in. We don't really see in the same way that that uh, Shantideva clearly did in his description. Um, and I was thinking about, I, when we were talking, Wilston and I were talking, we really see this session as the final session of the weekend as a chance to really mix it up with, with all of you. So I'm just kind of getting the conversation started, but I hope that you all feel uh, you can uh, chime in. And I would really like to hear what you have to say. And uh, of course, Wilston, of course, will chime in a lot. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, and I've been thinking about, well, you know, what, what could a text written in the context of, you know, extreme monastic tradition, male monastic tradition, a text written in the 8th century have, uh, that's relevant to uh, people like us who are lay people, uh, for the most part, and in the 21st century, completely different kind of culture, uh, part, era, part of the world, historical uh, times and lifestyles. You know, uh, one could say, well, that was then and this is now. You know, what is the uh, uh, irrelevance? And in my thinking about this, uh, it seems to me that there are really uh, fundamental guidelines to behavior, and we're talking about being in the world, uh, being engaged with the world. There are guidelines that are so helpful coming from this text that somehow are relevant now as, uh, as much as they were probably relevant when they were spoken or, or written. Because the... Um, the interesting thing about ethics, from my perspective, is it has to come from a very spontaneous 
place, and there's no real guideline that will cover every complex situation we encounter. If ethics were easy, we'd all be ethical. <laughs> so many, so many uh, points in my life, it's not at all clear which is the wise and appropriate response. You know, weighing alternatives that both have their ups and downs and how to make a decision which way to go, what to take up and what to uh, put down. Mm. Uh, always a challenge. So, uh, the fundamental, as a practitioner from my point of view, the fundamental ground that makes it possible to uh, engage with the world without falling into judgmentalism or, or uh, self-righteousness or uh, uh, kind of overly earnestness uh, is a grounding in shamatha and vipassana. It seems that uh, as a starting point, one needs to be able to settle the mind. One needs to, to do some inner work uh, and to to uh, kind of bring ourselves into more present awareness. I found a, a lot of times, in, in, we'll be talking, I think, more about exchange and, and Tonglen and some Lojong material, but I think a lot of times the real problem is at the very first step of not being fully present ourselves and not actually allowing people to come into our presence for us, as apart from what I call wall wallpaper <laughs> or, or background to our particular drama that uh, is so absorbing. To be able to stop, to be able to be tune in, you know, to what is actually happening, uh, really takes grounding. Uh, first in shamatha, being able to eat, be still and be present, to actually be at all. Uh, and then in the Vipassana, in the sense of, of um, opening out of the mind to, to greater possibilities uh, beyond our, our prejudgment, our prepackaged, overly predefined uh, life. Uh, uh, Trungpa Rumche, the Vijayadara, talked about Vipassana as having uh, antennae, ha having antennae like a bug that you actually pick up on what's going on. So you respond to what's needed rather than come in with a, a solution that you think is going to help. And that's what usually happens if we can't stop to begin with. It's like a school. Uh, instructions to cross the street. Stop, look, and listen. <laughs> uh, which is so much what happens, you can uh, uh, you discover through the practices of uh, shamatha vipassana. The other thing that I think is so relevant and um, in this practice, one way of looking at shamatha, interesting way that uh, I was taught is it's called making friends with yourself. And, uh, and Wilson was talking about obstacles like self-hatred. <laughs> well, obviously, this is the opposite of that. Coming from the point of, um, uh, of li lighter touch 
of, of judging opinion mind that opens up possibilities otherwise that are clouded over uh, very much so. So idea of befriending yourself, but not in the, a lot of times that can, that can come up in a sloppy kind of way or new agey way perhaps. What is so amazing to me in terms of the bodhisattva path altogether is that uh, there's a quality of mixing it up with what's difficult in the world, being willing to, to get one's hands dirty and not out of fear remove oneself from the, the uh, sufferings and challenges and traumas on individual planetary, social, governmental uh, levels. Being willing to jump into the fray, so to speak, but from a point of non-attachment to results, from the point of genuineness uh, interest. So I always ask myself, you know, how much do you actually really care about other people? How much do you actually care about yourself? How much do you actually care about the planet and all the beings in it? How interested are you? Are you just feign interest? Someone starts telling your story and your eyes start glazing over them. You know, how, how much of a real appreciation and interest and curiosity does one have? Because um, a lot of people who try to do good in the world and try to fix things and all that, and that's very admirable. But to do that from a point of joy and a light touch, um, in the way of the uh, bodhisattva warrior is much more rare. But when there's that grounding, when there's that open, interest, sparky mind, um, that allows one to have that keep going. You know, Wilson talks about how important it is to be diligent, to keep going, and to not give up on, on yourself. And... Uh, I think the uh, idea that nobody does not have Buddha nature, no situation is unworthy of our care and loving attention. Uh, no one is worth discarding or being given up on. So there's so much in here. <laughs> Uh, and the other thing I think I come back to over and over again myself, and probably each of you will come back to different things that inspire you from this kind of text. But what I love about the way Shantideva talks is he talks about the elements as uh, examples of the earth and the water and the fire, um, wind, space. And there's uh, such a quality of the elements have no agenda. And so much of what happens when we get engaged with any problems immediately come from an agenda. The elements are just expressing a natural quality. Earth is solid, that's what Earth is. The sun shines, it just does it. It doesn't make a big deal out of it. It doesn't expect to be <laughs> rewarded for it, or even, I should say, gain any merit. It does it as an expression of who they are fundamentally. So uh, to me, that is the... Uh, the inspiration to find who we are 
to be open to, to all we need to do is to rest in our nature and the quality of uh, love and kindness will flow. It's not that we have to import it or create it or build it like a big project. We just have to open to the flow of compassion, which is an, um, uh, kind of a natural uh, quality that we have, but we forget about it. <laughs> I guess I would say forget about it. So uh, that's just breaking the ice. I, I don't want to talk too long before. Uh, oh, I'm so, it's so nice to listen. <laughs> <laughs> You've been working hard. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to say something? <laughs> that, would you like to contribute to, uh, before I say anything? Or anyone? Um, well, I haven't really, uh, I haven't really planned anything very uh, specific um, to say. I mean, in the sense that I, you know, I haven't sort of written anything out, uh, but. Um, talking about the application of the Bodhisattva path to uh, our present life. Um, one thing that, um, <clears throat> and as uh, as I've been saying over the, over the weekend, you know, uh, if Shantideva says something challenging, or maybe if I say something challenging, uh, that's all part of the deal, isn't it? it you know, the he, he hasn't sort of uh, pulled his punches when it came when it comes to the practice and the um, uh, the bodhisattva path and what the bodhisattva is trying to do and as uh, Jenny's been saying the his whole sensitivity to the uh, the natural world and then basically this overwhelming concern for uh, beings and uh, whatever sustains beings and may protect them um, and the thing in my own life uh, the thing that this um, implies is uh, an attitude to the animal world um, <clears throat> uh, the animals we don't know it's actually Chantideva's book seems to be exclusively uh, addressed to human beings. Uh, but this is actually only one aspect of the Bodhisattva path. And when we think of it, the Buddha's enlightenment was not just for human beings, it was for all beings. Um, <clears throat> all, the, all the beings of the six realms. And the, um, in the case of animals... <clears throat> Of course, there are the other class of beings, if you, if you like, that we have uh, access to. We can perceive them. And they can perceive us. And they uh, are inhabitants of this world. Uh, this world is not our world only. It belongs also to the animals. And um, one thing that is quite an important feature of our group in Dordogne, uh, the, and our particular teacher, is that uh, he is, uh, we are very much in the tradition of uh, Patrul Rinpoche. 
um, <coughs> which is a vegetarian uh, tradition. And uh, so um, this leaves, this lets, you know, this um, leads me to reflect on the consumption of meat by Buddhists. Uh, of course, uh, whatever one may eat or not, it's, in Buddhism it's not a matter of dietary laws, of course. There is, in, pr in principle, nothing uh, wrong with eating meat, uh, including human meat, for that matter. Uh, I had this interesting conversation with the Kempo about you know, what Buddhists think about cannibalism. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> And he said, well, uh, if the person has died, it's, it is, uh, the flesh of the human being is just as the same as the flesh of an animal. Um, anyway, uh, and actually this was good, the, uh, my kind of reflection on, on, uh, on animals and vegetarianism came to a head when I was translating the, the, sh the little those two little texts of uh, Lama Shabkar, mm -hmm. who um, was a great um, yogi who lived in the 19th century in Amdo. And um, he was very interesting because he was uh, both a Nyingma and a Galukpa. You know, and we were talking about uh, the Galukpas and the Nyingmapas. He, had to, he, he, he belonged to both traditions and loved both of them. And he was um, one of a fairly small group of uh, Tibetans who abstained from eating meat. And of course, in Tibet itself, uh, it, that is very difficult to do because, uh, you know, in that countryside, in that country, at that altitude, uh, very little, you can grow very little. Uh, apparently, it's much easier nowadays. Uh, you know, you can, you can get imports from China without too much difficulty. So that, um, you know, for instance, the, the monks of Serta, who, who are the disciples of Kempo Jigpan, they are actually quite strict vegetarians, which they're able to do because they can import vegetable food. Um, but that is not the case for most Tibetans. Most Tibetans eat meat, and uh, Japanese Buddhists tend to eat meat, I believe. Uh, in contrast with other traditions like the Chinese Mahayana who don't. Um, and in the case of Western Buddhists, um, we, people tend to follow the customs of their teacher. All right, so if their teacher eats meat, then they tend to do so too. Um, so I don't really want to get into the question of whether it's right or wrong. Uh, to eat meat, because it's very uh, difficult to sort of dictate, especially a question of food, what other people should do. And there may be many reasons why uh, people eat meat. For instance, in Tibet, it wasn't most people couldn't eat anything else because there wasn't anything else. Uh, in the West, people might feel, um, you know, because of their social position. Uh, their professional position, um, their family, uh, and so on and so forth. It's difficult for them to change their diet, right? 
So the um, Lama Shabkar, when he talks about um, animals, he says, when you see an animal, you must remember that this is your old mother, that this animal has once been your parent. And, uh, you know, as, as we were going on about it in the weekend, you know, when we, talk, when we think about this, when we have this reflection, when we talk about other beings who have been our parents, um, it, it means that at some point you have been extremely precious to that being and they have been extremely precious to you and in the course of time you have drifted apart and forgotten each other. So the thing, I, I think what is important for uh, people who are trying to practice bodhicitta is that whatever you eat, you have to be aware of where it's coming from. Um, our whole society does everything it can to conceal the realities of the uh, food industry. You know, because of, the, because of the human population, which is now so large, and because uh, people like to eat meat, the food industry does everything it can to produce an enormous quantity of meat very cheaply. Right? And so uh, this means that uh, animals are uh, frequently raised in factory conditions, and uh, in terrible conditions, actually, and this is kind of concealed from us. They don't want us to see. Uh, you know, according to the, because of the European laws, the European community, they kind of divided up different countries and different areas for different kinds of food production. And Brittany, that part of France you know, that sticks out at the top, uh, is uh, sort of has become a kind of centre of uh, industrial. I don't know what you call it in English. Um, industrial farming. Industrial farming, mm-hmm. yeah. So when you, when, you, yeah, when you sort of drive through Brittany, these beautiful green fields, and they're all empty. There are no animals. The animals are all... You don't see the animals. They're all in these uh, pens, in these, uh, you know, these factory farms, uh, in which, you know, like pigs, uh, who, can't, who are sort of kept in cages where they, they can't move their whole life, or chickens that are in battery cages and so on. And for the farmers, for the industrial farmers, they, the animals are simply uh, products. They're units. They, are, they don't have any importance as individuals. Uh, and the tendency is that, uh, you know, if, if you have a cat or a dog, or a duck, as we have at home, uh, you <laughs> notice that actually, you know, whereas you think of all animals as being a kind of, almost as if they were clones of each other, each individual animal is an individual. It's an individual person. It has its own, you know, you can have two cats and they're completely different personalities, right? Of course, they're not like, they, they're, they're, uh, they don't have the intelligence of human beings, but they feel and they suffer, and, um, you know, in the factory farm situation, every instinct of the animal is violated at all times. 
and they live in conditions of appalling suffering. And the only reason for this is that our society has this insatiable craving uh, for meat. And so um, there's a very interesting uh, speech given by Machu Rikai in the, one of the Mind and Life meetings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he was saying how, uh, you know, they were talking about the ecology, in fact. And so he talked about industrial farming. And he said he had all the figures, you know, all the statistics. And he was saying that, you know, because the scientists were talking about global warming and um, so on and greenhouse gases. And he was saying, you know, um, one of the side effects of industrial farming is that it produces an enormous quantity of methane, which is a greenhouse gas. It comes from the effluent that pours out of these sheds and so on. And, uh, and by the way, in Brittany, it's a major problem because the effluent has poisoned the uh, water table uh, so that people don't, they can't drink the water out of the tap. They have to buy water. Um, and he said it produces this enormous quantity of methane, which is contributing very strongly to global warming. The thing to remember, though, if you compare it with uh, CO2, the amount of methane gas produced by industrial farming in the West is actually far greater than all the CO2 produced by cars and trucks. And the interesting thing is that methane um, decomposes in 10 years, whereas CO2 takes about a century. And so he said that if the... Uh, if the meat consumption were reduced, this would actually have an almost immediate impact on our ecology. Um, and there's a, they brought out a kind of um, a sort of documentary film called Cowspiracy. I don't know if you <laughs> saw it, but <laughs> did you? Did you uh, and it's about this this peculiar fact that in the OG, uh, what do you call OG GN, GNOs, yeah. NGOs. They call it this, and it's a G O N in French. These kind, these kind of, no, these kind of humanitarian, uh, you know, like Greenpeace and NGOs, right? NGOs. Yeah, who are interested in the ecology and you know global warming and greenhouse gases. And this guy went round them and he asked them, "Well, have you considered methane?" And nobody had. And it was actually interesting because they didn't actually want to know about it because they knew that it implied the reduction of the production of meat, right? So, of course, it's not a... Anyway, that's as it may be. These are just facts which are interesting to take on board. But what, what the point I want to bring out from Shabkar's uh, writing, he says that if you uh, practice um, aspirational bodhicitta and you do the practices that are associated with them, that is to say, the meditation on the four boundless thoughts, or that meditation of, um, you know, recognizing being as one's, one's mother, wanting to repay their kindness, and so on. He said, when you get, uh, when that really takes hold of you, uh, you can't even bear to hold the meat, let alone put it in your mouth. And he said, basically, he said that. Um, 
Well, of course, he said this is a very dangerous thing to say in Tibet, and if I t- say it too often, they're going to attack me and beat me up. <coughs> you know, he, he, he was very well aware. He talked about the fact that if you imagine a monastery uh, where, uh, you know, the monks eat meat and then they go to a farmer and they buy uh, a yak or something for a, you know, for a festival, and then the farmer knows that they're going to come back in a, in a short time. He'll breed more yaks to produce more meat. And so the actual, the actual production of meat was... He was very well aware of the market forces, in other words. And he said, if, on the other hand, that monastery had been a Kadampa monastery, where they don't eat meat, that farmer would not do this. And he would not uh, get involved in the cruelty of uh, killing the animal. Um, and so uh, that also brings in another, another factor that... In the meat industry, um, it's not just the animals that you have to think about. It's their killers that you have to think about. These two are our concern as uh, people, you know, trying to practice uh, the Bodhisattva path. And, you know, you know, you know PETA and, the, you know, these different organizations that secretly go in and film these horrible uh, situations. And you can see that it has a terrible, uh, brutalizing effect on the people who do it. You know, very often, they have to drink enormous amounts to be able to face the, the terrible work. You know, they uh, killing the animal, bleeding it, skinning it, possibly while it's still alive, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's, one has to bear in mind, it's an unpleasant fact, but it is a fact, that these people are working on our behalf. They're only doing it because we're buying their product. And in a way, as my teacher once said, he said, in a way, in a slaughterhouse, the animals are the lucky ones because the animals are completing a karmic cycle, but their killers are beginning and on a, on a grand scale, and they will suffer terribly in the future. So, you know... We can't be kind of selective in what we, you know, what we think about if we inter- really care about this uh, Mahayana teaching. Anyway, the thing is that, of course, there are all. The, I think the important thing for people who are vegetarians is that they should not uh, judge others. This, I think, is very important. It's not their business what other people, the, what other people, what solutions different people find to their problems. It's, you know, we talked a little bit about the solitary aspect of the practice, and everybody, you know, there are plenty of Buddhists who eat meat, uh, plenty of lamas who eat meat. It's not for uh, people like me to pass judgment. The only thing that I, and actually there are plenty of stories. Uh, you know, there, there's a manuscript being prepared for publication uh, which is a collection of um, uh, memories of uh, Pachu Rinpoche that we know have been preciously uh, preserved by his disciples. And Pachu Rinpoche was a vegetarian. And um, like Shabkar, he was prepared to put up with the hardship of being a vegetarian in Tibet, where you know you don't have uh, the necessary protein, you don't, have the, you, you don't have a fat intake that pr- protects you from the cold, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, he did it. Uh, but every so often, he used to get a visit from somebody called Do Kientze. 
who was a great teacher, uh, but very uh, unconventional, shall we say. He was like a, almost like a robber baron, and uh, <coughs> he would, uh, you know, he he would sort of do all sorts of outrageous things. And every so often he would turn up at Paterimsh's cave. On one occasion he was holding a large leg of a deer, you know, still moist with blood. And he said, here, take this, this is a present. And, uh, and Paterimbashi sort of, you know, he didn't want it, and he sort of started having these thoughts, you know, what sort of llama is Dokensi anyway? He's obviously just killed, he was a hunter. He obviously just killed this animal. At which point, uh, Dokensi beat him up and said, you're still trapped in your concepts. Snap out of it, you know. And often he would do this to Paterimbashi. He would, he would regularly uh, uh, sort of uh, do things like this. Of course, Dokensi, they say, was this great siddhar, and uh, uh, killing animals, he would liberate them into the higher realms. You know, there's this famous story that he, he, was, he approached some monastery, and um, two dogs came out to attack him. One was white and one was black. Uh, so they, they got close to him and he immediately pulled out his sword and chopped both of them in half. <laughs> and his entourage was deeply shocked, of course. And uh, so he sort of gave them a ticking off for having too many concepts. And then he joined them together again. Uh, but he joined the black, the, the, half, the black half to a white half and the white half to a black half. And they, in this particular monastery, they kept the skins to, yeah. you know, after they, the dogs died. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, uh, so there are plenty of stories like that. Um, the only thing I'd like to say is that if we eat meat, we should be brave enough to consider where it's come from and all the, the, all, all the things that I've been, I've been saying that that implies. And I think that, um, you know, you might have very good reasons for eating meat, Maybe your desire for it is just too strong, or you know you need to in your work or your family situation and so on. Um, but I think that if one eats meat, one should have that awareness and one should have a certain sorrow about it. I think that if you uh, if one eats meat, as Shavka says, if you eat meat uh, carelessly, without thinking about what it means, as a sort of uh, you know, ordinary, everyday thing that you don't care about, you don't even think about, what you are doing is you're turning away from beings. You're abandoning them in this vast ocean of suffering. So, um, you know, Shantide, uh, uh, Pachurimbachi, Shabkar, and so on, they kind of say, well, it's not a matter of forcing yourself to stop. You should do so when you're ready to stop and when you wish to stop. And you will wish to stop when you become sensitive to this. It will become an almost kind of natural process. So to me, that, that's, that's quite an interesting, important way of applying the Bodhisattva teachings to one's everyday life. Whether, whether or not that means giving up eating meat or whether it just means becoming sensitive and aware of the, the situation. And actually, for, for that matter, taking on board the whole ecological side of things. Because as, as practitioners, we have to care for this world. We have to 
because it's the habitat of, of beings. People can't, you know, it's the only one we've got. We've got to save the habitat and, for, and protect those beings that need that habitat. Not only for all the animals and humans that are existing now, but those who will come later. These, this little child here, when one thinks of the world that this, she's going to grow up to live in, you know, when you when you listen to when you listen to the uh, the politicians and the you know the heads of these corporations who are making vast fortunes, it's almost like they don't care about what their children are going to have to cope with. Uh, but we we can't we can't do that if we're if we are practitioners. I think. So uh, I'm sure you have plenty of things to say. So please. I'd just like to add one yeah. thing. I mean, I would put. What, what you're saying within a, a, a broader context of, of uh, the attitude of just taking uh, without uh, offering, without requesting permission, mm. and, it, and, and kind of a willful ignoring of all the things we do that are on the backs of other beings that suffer. Mm. Yes. A lot of... Uh, Human beings, as well as animal beings, uh, are directly paying for our um, relatively um, comfortable situation. And I think that there's incredible uh, blindness about, for instance, the Western world or or the United States in relation to the rest of the world, uh, not realizing, like, all the things, I mean, I enjoy a lot of things, you know, like my iPhone. <laughs> yeah. But where, again, you could say, where does this come from? It's like doing the Nadanas on everything. What is, what is behind? Who are the people that are, you know, in these dumps in, <laughs> in the little towns in India taking apart toxic metals to, you know, preserve sure. them? Who are the miners? Who are the, yeah. who are the, all the people? Who are the people right here that are, uh, um, conveniently uh, ignored and in, invisible to us, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's you know our, our teacher used to, Trungpa would would say, uh, you know, all, all these beautiful Mahayana sentiments, they're really great, but words don't cook rice. You know, how are we actually living day to day, and how are we aware of where we fit in uh, to the broader scheme of things? You know, at the same time. Personally speaking, uh, it can be overwhelming. And yeah. Joanna Macy, who you know, teaches at Naropa regularly, talks about the, the tendency, easy tendency to despair. Um, and you think if a bodhisattva is supposed to solve all pro- problems, well, yeah. you know, no wonder that Avalokiteshvara has had split into many, many pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, because you could say, look, in this direction, there's all these problems. There's wars, there's famines, there's, there's oppression, there's racism, there's uh, sexism, there, uh, all sorts of problems. There's, you know, killing factory farming. There's uh, everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say, oh, my God, it's, it's hopeless. It's just like, you know, going down the tubes and you can just say, give up into nihilism. You know, very easily. Mm. So how, how to maintain that um, within all of that, that's a, so radical, within all of that, the sense of the joyfulness is said that Bodhisattva can be joyful in mm. the midst of hell, right. and be joyful in the midst of actually not because you're not looking at, at uh, samsara, but because you, 
even though you can see how bad it is, there's still a quality possibility of joyfulness, which is like really kind of uh, <laughs> mind-boggling to, to think of it, but so, it's so important. It's true, it's a terrible uh, burden when you think about it like that. It's, uh, one does feel helpless, that's true. It's uh, very you know, easy. In a, in a given uh, you know, moment in our society. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same in Europe. It's Europe and America like, are similar. It's, it's the first world. Uh, capitalism has always been a slave culture. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to ancient Rome, they, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't sc- in ancient Rome they weren't squeamish about having slaves in their houses, but uh, we, st- we don't have that, but we still have slaves. It's just they're in another country. That we don't, you know, one, you know, one verse in the text mm-hmm. I find really mm-hmm. useful, in terms, personally, in terms of when I'm feeling this overwhelmed and help, helpless thing, mm-hmm. is this one verse where Shanti Davis says, if, if you see a problem and, and you can do something about it, just do it. That's and right, if you yeah. can't do anything about it, just let it go. Don't, mm. don't hold on to it or worry about mm. all the things you can't do. Mm. Because then you can be paralyzed and do nothing. But if you see something in front of you, you can fix it at any level, just go ahead and do it. And have, So it's that sense of... You had talked earlier about recognizing mm. one's limitations. Yes, yes. And, and I think it goes back to even the earlier part of the path of really finding out who you are and what you particularly can contribute. You know, what is your talent? What is your uh, destiny in some ways? And, and then going for that, mm. and that means that no one can do everything. Mm. Recognize there are many, many problems you can't fix. And that's very painful. Yeah. I remember Samasakensi once talked, Rimshi talking about it once, and he said, when you think about that, actually the only thing you can do is practice. <laughs> you know? Um, did you want to say something? Yeah. yeah. But that could lead to a, to a feeling of quiescence. It's, it's true. Sort of like, oh, yeah. forget about all you. I'm just going to go practice. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's also right. Yeah. <laughs> that, the, uh, yeah. the balance. Hmm? Your mind is People can hear, yeah. Say it again. Um, I was hear. just thinking that uh, that practice, um, the reason to practice is not to avoid it, but that it, it, uh, it, it uh, that strength that develops of uh, not being attached to that either, your sorrow, and uh, that I, things are workable for me, and uh, anything I can do to assist anything else in that direction is great, mm-hmm. but I don't get there without practicing mm-hmm. personally. I'm not saying one shouldn't practice, but no, I also I know that. So pra- either. <laughs> I didn't think you were saying you shouldn't but practice. But practice can be, not- an attachment to practice oh. can be an escape from responsibilities oh. mm-hmm. in the world, or escape from the pain of being in the world the way the world is. Yeah. That's all, but of course. <laughs> but there is there is one way actually that we can uh, we can affect things because we are all consumers. Mm-hmm. And you know when you're talking about what you you're talking about your phone, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know it's true that I have a a Mac iPad, what uh, not an iPad, um, 
computer and laptop. Uh, this, I'm sure, was made somewhere in China or the Far East by people who never in all their lives would ever be able to afford such a thing. And, you know, it's, it's true. I, I bought it and I use it and I consume it. But, you know, we, 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 li we live in a very waste, wasteful society. And we, um, you know, we can actually uh, affect... If probably the probably the only way we can affect uh, that is effective is to limit our con our consumption of certain things, you know, because the these great uh, corporations that's all they want they they want our money they want to stimulate our appetites as much as possible, so that they can sell and we can buy buy buy, and then we throw it out because we don't need it and all that stuff. So yeah, I, th I think I think a sort of awareness of. Uh, as you were saying, and you know how how we live in our in our societies, something well, we something that's something we can do, even if it's on a small scale. Although I'm not sure, I I, I believe in the uh, solution is asceticism, exactly, because I think there's an incredible, uh, uh, you know, goodness in the kind of things that people create as well, and, mm. and beauty and uh, I'm not. I didn't mean asceticism. And, yeah. No, yeah. I didn't mean that. I meant. Yeah. Uh, sort of moderation, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> um, come here, right. um, I think what's being uh, spoken of here all along is that we have our formal sitting meditation, shamatha vipassana, and then that weaves into our daily lives and our daily lives become a practice at that point. So what you're talking about being able to be aware of all these things when we're in the grocery store. Oh, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my phone. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm so very sorry. <laughs> Funny to go off right when you ask me a question. What was I saying? I mean, you know, I was, I try to buy the cheapest eggs I can possibly buy, and, and it says cage free. And, it, and in some other place I read, um, cage free means the chickens are in this, confined to this little room. They're not in a cage, but they're in a room. I saw cage free as being out in the meadow, you know, and <laughs> running around. So it's, it's a constant, constant growing awareness that has to happen that can only happen through your formal practice and, and then being aware of weaving that into our lives. I think, uh, you know, in response to that, a uh, 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 really amazing thing about uh, the Mahayana teachings is that, uh, you know, Say you don't actually feel that bad about eating meat. Mm -hmm. There's a path of developing uh, kindness and compassion step by step. So you don't have to feel bad that you don't feel this way or that way. But there's a, the whole idea of uh, working with the paramitas and working um, you know, with the uh, cultivation of loving kindness and compassion on a regular basis, step by step by step. There's a sense of um, opening greater sensitivity to to both uh, your pain and the pain of other beings and particularly the in, uh, completely inseparable quality between um, 
uh, you and, and all the other beings that uh, have been, are, and, and will be. So there's a, a kind of a sense of, okay, just step by step. And that where do you do the most that practice is in the daily life, primarily. You know, the, the sitting practice is a, is a ground, but where you're really tested is in the daily life. Because it's nice, it's easy for me to feel really warm and kind together and, you know, re- relatively sane when I'm all alone sitting on my cushion. But as soon as I walk out the door and I encounter one difficult person, then I, then I you know, that's the person who's my teacher because then I, mm. I see, you know, oh my God, mm. <laughs> reacted this way, reacted that way. So there's a, it's almost like this dance between the formal practice where we're really trying to, as you said, strengthen your mind and, and, and becoming more open and aware and, and then the uh, feedback which the world graciously provides <laughs> on a <laughs> moment-to-moment basis when, mm-hmm. when you run against basically yourself, bouncing yeah. back at you. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I wanted to say a few things mostly about, is this thing on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. About uh, the meat situation. Um, so um, the factory farming is the phrase that that is generally used and you know if you, if you look at what's going on with factory farming it's a holocaust that we've never seen before mm. in the world i mean the the uh, the um, number of animals that are tortured and killed is astounding i don't know what the numbers are but i mean it's got to be Billions, not millions. And um, uh, the cavalier attitude that uh, Wilson was talking about, um, for example, a lot of times in, uh, in email, I get emails all the time about feasts. Uh, I'm going to bring meat, and it's said in such a, uh, a cavalier way that it is very disturbing to me. And another thing that I've found is that uh, Buddhist, Buddhist um, events are the places, like I live probably in a pretty sheltered society in Fort Collins where vegetarian is, is, is common and it's accepted. But what I found is like if I go to a potluck, usually there's not meat, but if there is, it's labeled. But if it's a Buddhist event, there's, there's meat. I always go to Buddhist things and end up eating meat because it's put out there without anybody any notification. So I think Buddhists really need to have a have a look at the things that Wilson said. And then regarding the uh, the cowspiracy, um, there I didn't quite understand what you said, but um, I did talk to an atmospheric scientist in Fort Collins. Uh, about that specific problem about methane, mm. and um, uh, he seemed to think that it was a consensus that methane, because it dissipates quickly, uh, does not have as severe an impact as CO, CO2, mm. um, but that's something that should be investigated. There's a book called Cow Saved the Planet. I don't know if anybody's 
come across that, but it has the opposite point of view. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what the answer is <laughs> but to the methane issue. Yeah, but, I, don't uh, know. I don't know either. But regarding uh, mm -hmm. eating meat, I think that's extremely, extremely important. And in terms of what practice is, I don't believe that practice is sitting on a cushion. I think practice is the way you live primarily. And part of that is, is like an awareness of meat. Mm. More and more modern teachers from Tibet, um, like there are teachers from Jigme uh, Punsuk Rinpoche's lineage that have come and spoken out very strongly against factory farming, which is now appearing in mm -hmm. Tibet itself. And uh, I, I just can't emphasize it enough. It just seems to be ignored. Mm -hmm. So thanks. Um, I was thinking about the, um, I'm feeling a little weepy. Whenever I talk about Bodhisattva stuff, I get a little, <laughs> it made my time at Europa sort of tiring. Um, constantly be crying, but I was thinking about um, what you were saying before, Judy, that we can look all around and just be like, oh my gosh, I feel so hopeless. There's this and there's that and there's that and there's that. But, you know, there's also, as we know as practitioners, Buddha nature, and we can have just so much confidence in the inherent wisdom of each of us. And I was thinking about this specific example. I'm so sorry, this just happens. Um, <laughs> it'll pass. Um, I apologize. No, I'm watering. Um, I was thinking about a specific example recently. I was reading a book um, called American Girls. I don't know if anyone's read this book. It's about the effect of social media on teenage girls. I and just that, read that. It'll make you weep, just oh, that topic. Like, yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> right, and it can be read sort of um, kind of with two minds. And, and reading it, basically in short, they're talking about how just the sort of rampant pornography on the internet and the sort of um, confluence of that with social media creates an environment for teenage girls that is uh, traumatizing to say the least and um, produces a lot of anxiety in them. Um, and so reading the examples through their lives, you could just, just wallow into that pit of hopelessness. And yet, throughout the interviews, the girls were so smart about mm -hmm. what it was doing to their minds. They were so aware of the mm -hmm. trap they were in. They, right. they could see so clearly, like, this is destroying my life, and yet I'm kind of addicted to it. But there was that insight throughout the book of the people who were experiencing the suffering that, like, I'm suffering, and, and I'm creating the suffering for myself um, mm -hmm. through this particular medium. But it could be a, a million different ones that we engage in. So there's this always this um, confidence that we know personally that in our times of greatest suffering, we do see our wisdom emerge, you know, and, and for those around us, we can see that as well. There it goes again. <laughs> but did it sort of, did that realization get them out of the trap or did they stay in it? Yes and no. I mean, uh, like okay. you're saying with any path, mm. it's depending on where you are and when you reach a certain, certain sensitivity and, and mm. strength actually to say like, I'm just not, I'm going to put this down. I'm not going to do this okay. anymore. So mm. it was both. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, it, it brings up for me the, uh, I feel that within the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of blind spots. And I think the condition of women is a big blind spot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not talked about that much. And you see, person, how can a person be a realized teacher and view half of humanity? as unworthy. It's a, to me, you know, there's, it's a blind spot. Mm -hmm. 
And a source of a great pain is when you look at the condition of the female gender in throughout, throughout the world. You know, uh, you know, even lines like, uh, not, not, it, the, the teachings are not accessible to many women. Mm. It's slightly different as a Western woman. <laughs> You yes. seem to be viewed as a man or something, yes. slightly. <laughs> but uh, I've heard there's so talk about horrifying conditions uh, uh, within the world. The female gender is pretty much up there through, throughout, even in, uh, even in very uh, uh, kind of wealthy societies such as ours. In terms of, you know, in those, that book and you know, people struggling with the you know, message that you're inferior. The same as, as certain oppressed races and whatnot are struggling with a message all the time coming that you're not worthy, uh, coming at you from all directions. And then real, the actual institutional and uh, uh, kind of many ways of invisible forms that, that maintain this system of oppression and uh, maintain a kind of a blind spot so people can go along and, uh, and pay no attention and but, not sorry. change anything. Say that's just the way things are. But well, when you talk about a blind spot, you mean in, you're talking about in the, among the teachers or among the, amongst, even Western Buddhists well, generally? Well, in general society, but when you, especially when you, you hear profound teachings by people who at the same time have this view of women, it doesn't, doesn't. Are you talking about connect. Tibetans or Tibetans, Westerners? Yeah. yeah. Oh, another. Yeah. I'm mean, even worse in the Thai and, and, oh, and yeah. some oh, of yeah. the other uh, Buddhist traditions, you know, which is, women are very devalued and it's just considered okay, mm. and to be a you know a practitioner and bodhisattva path and all that. Um, I'm sorry, but I, I don't. No, yeah. Think it's right. Yeah, and I think actually the question of meat eating is also a blind spot, especially among Tibetans. So, and I think that actually raises an interesting question that, you know, you don't have to accept everything that you, from the mm -hmm. culture of the teacher, that mm -hmm. you're, you know, you can still respect a teacher, you can still uh, respect their teachings, but that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't use your own intelligence mm -hmm. and, you know, discernment to, you know, just because your teacher abuses women, it doesn't mean to say that his disciples should, you mm -hmm. know, and, or for that matter, they don't, that they don't have to follow him. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting too, I mean, it, it brings up what we talked yeah. about maybe a little bit yeah. before. I mean, we, first of all, it's a reminder, we all have blind spots. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and that it also uh, has a valuable quality of cutting through romanticism or idealization of mm -hmm. teachers. You can have a great respect for a teacher, as you mentioned, and, and not believe everything mm -hmm. or, or realize it. Even great teachers come within cultural baggage of certain mm. sort, and how to sort that out into the, to the yeah. way that works uh, and is most true to the mm. tradition as well. There's mm. an interesting uh, remark that the Dalai Lama makes in one of his books when he talks about uh, the role of the guru, and he says, you know, this line that you you, you know, seeing uh, all the actions of the guru as perfect. He says, in his view, this is an extremely dangerous teaching. And it shouldn't be applied right at the beginning of the path. You know, people, on the contrary, should be encouraged to put their teachers to the test. You know, traditionally, in, the, in, 
in the in the teachings. It says twelve years is not short enough. It's not long. It's not. It's not too long to put a teacher to the test. You know, to sort of to, what we tend to do is to sort of get kind of you know through enthusiasm. You you sort of get get yourself in a situation and that you you know it's difficult to get out of. But I think I think it's very I think it's perfectly okay to sort of hang back and you know. Uh, put the teacher to the test and not sort of buy into all the you know the cultural stuff that comes that comes with him or her I don't know if this is really a question or just sort of bringing up a comment about the middle way or going with the flow or or feeling like you have you want to be a, a very Strong um, bodhicitta, um, you know, sort of teacher, but then you get sort of blown away by what's going on in our times and trying to come back to that path or that that flow mm. and staying in the flow to be effective. Mm. And I don't, I don't know if there's how do we come to that sort of place. <laughs> what do you mean that flow? I mean, there's just so many th- issues, so many things that confront us every day. The, mm-hmm. you know, vegetarianism. I mean, we've we've heard a lot here today, and just um, keeping sort of. Um, open and keeping our practice in a place that we're both learning and on our path to enlightenment, but yet still being able to be um, a practitioner of helping others and making that balance. Well, I would say myself is that it's connected with the notion of perseverance, so just one step at a time, just going forward. And I also would reference what, what Sandy was saying, that I think our view of practice has to be like a 24-7 kind of view, that they don't make a big distinction between on the cushion and off the cushion, that they're, they're completely interrelated. And in some ways, for most of us, the, if you even just measure time, the time off the cushion and the time on the cushion, it tends to be more time off the cushion than, off, than on, <coughs> unless you're like a really Sorry. in retreat all the time or something. So there's a sense of uh, uh, making use of that, which is there's so many tools in the, in the Mahayana for doing that, particularly working with the paramitas and the, uh, the slogan practices of Atisha and whatnot. There's all sorts of things that bring the practice into every small Smallest things we do and, and the biggest challenges that we face both, there's, there's teachings right there to, to help us do just what you say, kind of where they say, whatever you encounter, immediately join it with practice. Whatever you encounter, it goes up and down, sideways, and then it's very much individual. So.
A couple of things. I'd just like to say that I think it's very important to um, work with situations as they present themselves in real life to have the most effectiveness or even relationship. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I, I've lived in Tibetan societies for many years of my life. And uh, not only do I find this characterization of Tibetan women and Buddhism's regard of women being to be erroneous in many situations, but I find an incredible strength among women mm -hmm. and incredible resiliency. And, and in fact, mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, it's the women who carried uh, the society uh, ability to survive in exile. I did not say the women were weak. I just said the men were short-sighted. <laughs> okay, yeah. But, but also, just, yeah, well, that's a very good point. Not, <laughs> nonetheless, I mean, I've, I've also uh, talked to women who are involved with women's issues in uh, uh, Asian countries who uh, often feel resentment about the stereotypes that are cast upon them by Western views of, of, of the feminine. And because uh, their, their culture has a certain uh, dynamic that has to do with something, and, and they know better than we do about how to work with that dynamic in many cases. I'm not discounting anything you say, because I also lived in the midst of Hindu society, which I find much more overwhelmingly brutal. I'm just talking about simple things, yeah. like I, I was just in Bhutan, right, and I met yeah. with the head of the... Uh, uh, Tibetan, I mean, Bhutanese Nuns Association. Mm -hmm. And just on a practical level, they get no money relative to the monks. They're not valued. Uh, they're, they're called, the uh, monks at equal level are called reverend and they're called anti. Mm. You know, they, they and, don't and get the, the resources. They don't get the, uh, the only, they have to really fight to be able to get the, the, the uh, Shedra kind of training uh, and the education to really take on roles uh, of prominence within the uh, tradition. I, that may just be Bhutan, but <laughs> I've also talked to Thai uh, Buddhist nuns who, you know, oh, totally, you know, <laughs> I mean, and this is just nuns. I'm not, so there's definitely structural uh, uh, unfairness in, in those... Uh, that's just the facts, whether... No, I agree, yeah. and I yeah. agree. And, and yeah. I could also create yeah. contrary examples within Bhutan, too, but I won't do that here. Yeah, yeah. But there is a, you know, like, there is a kind of built-in problem that the, uh, the Tibetans are going to have to deal with, and they're slowly getting there, and that's the, the Gelongma ordination, uh, because it doesn't exist in Tibetan Buddhism. It wasn't transmitted, they think. Uh, and so uh, Tibetan women who want to get, get full ordination, they can't get it in the, in the Tibetan Buddhism. They have to go outside not into Chinese Buddhism and so on. But the, the important thing is here is not so much that, but the fact that uh, in, the, you know, in the monasteries, in the, in the colleges, uh, women can't become geshes or kempos. Because in order to be a kempo and a geshe, you have to be a gelong. You have to have full ordination. So you have all these women, um, more and more of them, who have, you know, they're intellectually the equals of any geshe or kempo that are around, but they don't get recognition, which is wrong, you know. And uh, the Dalai Lama himself is very aware of this, but on the other hand, they feel, you know, well, we can't change it because, you know, it's... 
Of course we can change it. <laughs> but, um, you know. Yeah, change it. Of course we can change it. <laughs> I mean, he said, you know, the, the, Tibet, the, the general the attitude Tibet. of the Tibetan is, you know, this, the tradition is so strong that, yeah. you know, they're kind of trapped. But um, I, I, think, I think it will change. And, I, and I, actually, it's thanks to the uh, work of Western nuns that have, you know, put this process into, into motion. And, you know, they're doing a lot to um, slowly rectify the situation, but it is slow. Yeah. On, a, on a perhaps a related note, uh, as you pointed out, this particular text, Bodhicharya Avatara, was presented within a monastic context. Mm-hmm. And that's important to keep in mind. And yet, two or three of your more brilliant examples of the text had to do with marriage, which led me to believe that either you have been married, are married, or are thinking very seriously about getting married. Who, me? Yeah. And, and, it, and it made me wonder whether, you, whether it's possible that marriage is the new monasticism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on the level of discipline, it's, it's way up there, yes. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, to ask, you know, earlier you were talking about um, teachers... And I was just thinking that both of you have had such amazing teachers in your lifetimes. Um, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about um, your teacher's experience with this text or something that you've learned from them in relation to these particular teachings uh, from Shantideva. Um. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because my teacher, Chogyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he definitely taught on these principles, but in terms of a text commentary, uh, he seemed to, he talked more with the Jewel Ornament of Liberation and, and using that as a primary text when he talked about the Mahayana, but he referenced with great uh, affection over and over again the Shantideva teachings. And... Uh, um, and he loved the story about Shantideva, you know, and how he was viewed uh, as such a, a goof-off. <laughs> and, uh, and I think in some ways, apart from the text itself, I think that, that story uh, was very powerful in the sense of our fixed views of who are teachers and, and who we can learn from and our tendency to to dismiss uh, many teachers and be at the, on one hand and be entranced by the trappings of teachers on the other hand, entranced by the forms and the retinue and the robes and the this and that uh, qualities and fixed views. And so the notion that uh, being surprised, and he came up with other examples of that many times of being uh, where you least expect it, words of wisdom mm. or teaching is there and it's not necessarily a problem of not being enough teaching but not having big enough ears and eyes and sense perceptions to actually receive the teaching that's being offered in so many forms and in ways so to me that was uh, extremely important and the uh, uh, now many many teachings on um, the value of the lay 
life, the value of ordinary life as an important part of the Dharma uh, training, being mixing it up with the world and uh, trying to close the gap between what's secular and sacred, mm. what's, you know, so-called practice and what is not practice, whatever that means, you know, and uh, uh, that, that message of the Mahayana that is so rich. And, and I guess the other thing, as I mentioned when I first started about uh, Shantideva's talking about so beautifully about the natural world and all the beautiful, you know, things he'd like to offer. Mm. And uh, that sense of uh, richness of the phenomenal world and kind of the aesthetics and appreciation and artistry uh, and, and seeing the, the kind of teaching that happens totally non-verbally through, through the arts and through gesture and, and through how you do the simplest thing. Uh, I, I used to learn so much just by how the Vijayadur would, would like pick up a, a, a glass. You know, it, it had tenderness, it had mindfulness, it had awareness, it had the whole thing and need no words at all. You know, that kind of thing. And, and the incredible kind of interest, interest in life, interest in the world. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's. I'm not sure actually. Um, one one thing that that struck me when I uh, I was getting to know uh, Alazenko Rinpoche, who um, came to France to learn English. Um, <coughs> in, um, uh, I don't know how it was about fifteen fifteen or so years ago, and I was giving him some English classes and. Uh, you know, he had he, he had this phenomenal memory, so he'd al- he'd already memorized a dictionary, uh, but he couldn't mm-hmm. sort of put it together. You know, he, he knew <laughs> he knew lots of words, and um, <clears throat> anyway, so we used to have these classes, and and I asked him if he wouldn't if he would give me the uh, lung of the lung transmission, the reading transmission of the Bodhicharya Vatara, and also Kempo uh, Kumpel. So we, you know, with every 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 class, he'd give, he'd give me a bit more. And uh, I remember the first day, he started reciting it from memory, the Bodhicharya And then when we got to the commentary, he started reciting that from memory. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, he had it completely sort of in his mind. And I think that's actually quite... I, I think that was true also of people like Dingo Kensu Rinpoche. Their, their whole mm-hmm. lives were sort of mm. saturated by this kind of, no, whenever, whenever, uh, whenever Dinga Kinsa Rinpoche taught, it was like listening to a book. Actually, he didn't sort of pause. It was like a constant stream that mm-hmm. came pouring out mm-hmm. of him. And when you sort of got it translated, it was, you know, it was all these things that was, you know, he, he, they said of him that uh, when he was studying the uh, Yontenzo, the Treasure of Precious Qualities of Kampoyonga, which is a big work of about three volumes, he would take his mala and each page he would read a hundred times. <laughs> that was his practice. Oh. I mean, he just, he just knew this stuff so well oh that it was gosh. kind of, uh, uh, it was his <laughs> life. And, uh, and it's, this has kind of percolated down a bit. I mean, at least, well, we, mm-hmm. we're not like that, right. but at least we, could have, we can admire it, you know. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they, they were light shunted over himself. I mean, Patrimbishi was the same. They said he 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 was 
that he must have been Shantideva, they say, you know, the way the Tibetans do. Um, um, yeah, they, they, they sort of internalized it completely. And, um, you know, their every reaction was sort of impeccable, you know, mm-hmm. com- with regard to what Shantideva was saying. It was always in, you know. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah, so that was, that was quite a big influence, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We still have 35 minutes to go. (laughs) We sort of touched on some of these things, but um, just in line with Marcus's question, you know, the the view as high as the sky and conduct as fine as flower, how have you, you seen your teacher sort of marry these two things? Like we're talking about Madhyamaka this morning, and now we're talking about factory farming today and like where the rubber meets the road can be interesting I'm just it's a hard question I know but I'm just curious how you, how you personally have sort of related to this whether the examples of your teachers or otherwise um, it's a difficult question because um Tibetan Buddhism is so uh, shot through with tantric ideas and, uh, and the figure of the guru and the lama is um, very important. And as we know, uh, that sort of creates a great deal of expectancy and projection on the part of the disciples and it's very true of Westerners, much more than Tibetans. Tibetans are much smarter when it comes to dealing with their teachers. Mm-hmm. You, know. Uh, you know, I remember... Uh, talking to, um, or hearing rather, uh, Kandra Rinpoche, who is the uh, daughter of Minning Shichen. And she uh, sort of carried on the lineage of her father. You know, the Mindraling monastery was rather peculiar. It's a little bit by, like, Shakya, like the Shakya monastery, Sakya monastery, where the, the uh, leaders of the monastery were sort of passed down in a family. They weren't uh, tulkus. And so she's kind of carrying on from her father. And, uh, you know, she was talking, you know, she's, she's very, very caring uh, about this question of the women. And she, she uh, does a lot of work to sort of encourage women practitioners. And, uh, and she said, you know, that they were talking about some lama who would, uh, you know, had some kind of sleazy story, you know, with uh, women and uh, many lovers and, uh, you know, women who were being abused by his... He was abusing. And she said um, she didn't think that would have happened in Tibet. She said, there's absolutely no reason why these women should say yes. They are perfectly free to tell him to get lost. And that's not... Uh, that's not um, a fault. That's not a, that's not a lack of devotion. You know, we, we all... You know, we were going back to... Uh, what I what I love about Shantideva and the, and the Mahayana tradition is precisely this. Uh, you know, we were saying that the solitariness of the practitioner that we have to sort of, as Shantideva says, we have to be, become masters of ourselves, and we don't have to buy in to all the the nonsense that that can come with um, Tibetan teachers, and that's just a fact. 
Now, on the one hand, you don't have to, it's, you don't have to sort of condemn the person, but you don't have to go there. You can just leave them. As it says in, in, the, in the Treasure of Precious Qualities, when you put your teacher to the test and you find that he doesn't live up to the teachings, leave him, go away. You don't have to stay. You will find somewhere else, someone else. So we all have to be responsible. We all have to sort of take uh, responsibility. I think, that's very, I think it's very important, and I think it's very important for Westerners to hear because we're very easily taken in by the, you know, the sort of mystique mm-hmm. of um, you know, Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. But I think among Tibetans, they're much more hard-nosed about... Uh, you know. You know, they've always been, they've always been uh, uh, you know, monks who break their vows. They've always been... To, you know, teachers, genuine or otherwise, who um, you know make mistakes. We, we have to take we have to take responsibility for ourselves and just leave <laughs> when when necessary. Yeah. Um, is that what you were saying? What you were talking about? Mm. Yeah, I mean uh, that's that at uh, that. that that quotation of Guru Rinpoche, you know, the, the view as high as the sky, but uh, car, uh, you know, attention to karma as fine as flower. Um, I think that's um, that's a good sort of criterion for uh, um, assessing the quality of a teacher. It also, it's also, has to, it also um, is important for us that uh, you know, however high our view may be. However, whatever tantric practices we may be, we may be involved in, that doesn't absolve us from the you know ethical behaviour, mm-hmm. because as Shantideva says, one of the one of the commitments of the Bodhisattva is not to cause scandal, is not to cause uh, the other people to fall because of one's bad behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a you know, I think there are many, many great Tibetan teachers who are, you know, whose whose conduct is absolutely impeccable, uh, and there are some that are, that are not like that. So we have to be careful. Yeah. I've also uh, I was heard that one one way to judge a, a teacher is by looking at the students. Mm. If the students are doing exactly what you said, are becoming into themselves. Mm. Uh, and developing their strength in their individual way, mm. that that's what to look for. And if mm. if the students are are kind of seeming become clones of the teacher, mm. they're losing the, themselves. That's a danger zone. Mm. Mm. But it's a tricky thing, you know. Certainly for me as a student of Wilden, a woolly teacher, <laughs> <laughs> there's different levels. You know, sometimes one not sure about judging which uh, uh, what's true ethics yeah. and what's true compassion for uh, so actually to go back to Shabkar you know when he's yeah. uh, talking about meat eating he said uh, there are llamas who eat meat and it's not it's not for anybody uh, to judge that because they you know a superior being uh, has a completely different agenda and so it's uh, it's actually better to not well, not to judge anybody, and in, and in fact, and in fact, the you know, you can have you can have a, a wild yogi type teacher who does all sorts of unconventional things, 
and you have to be really very careful. You know, you you can you know they 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 would say about uh, Dujum Lingpa, the um, predecessor of Dujum Rinpoche, that he was so terrifying that you couldn't people couldn't actually stand in front of him. <laughs> they couldn't. They uh, when they talked to him, they talked to him from the side. <laughs> you know, and he was you know he was completely. He, 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 he was totally uncon- unconventional, like Dokienzi himself. It was Dokienzi that introduced Paterimbaji to the nature of his mind, mm. despite the fact yeah. that he was a robber baron. Or, or, and, or Marpa was notoriously yeah, grumpy yeah. and had a terrible sense of uh, temper. That's another interesting thing, I think, maybe maybe more so for Westerners, of having this idea of, of Dharma, everything sort of smooths, nothing yeah, really bothers nice, you, yes. everyone's really kind of talks softly, they never get upset, they're very kind and, and peaceful all the time, and I think that's actually a, an obstacle as, as well. Yes, know? it is, yeah. yeah. There's this wonderful story about, <laughs> uh, about Dokense, uh, and you know, he was a contemporary of um, Jamyang Kinsibwangpo, who was this great, uh, you know, this great leader, great teacher, great Rime master. And uh, Jamyan Kinsibampo would say in his teachings, don't have anything to do with Dokienzi. He's uh, wild, he's (laughs) doing anything, he's, you know, um, he doesn't obey any of the rules, he's a sort of fraud. And at the same time, Dokienzi would say to his disciples, don't have anything to do with Jamyang Kinsibwampo. He's just a big hypocrite. He's uh, sitting on his throne. He's just, uh, you know, <laughs> taking all the offerings and so on. And then one day, Dokienzi died. And it said that at that moment, uh, miles away, uh, Jamyang Kinsibwampo was teaching. And he suddenly stopped. And he said, Dokienzi has returned to my heart. <laughs> they were the same. Talk here, you Weren't you? Didn't you have your hand up? Or they hallucinated. I, I think it got answered <laughs> by the natural course of events because the <laughs> point was uh, addressed by this notion of the uh, crazy yogi. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, you know, we in the West have to be very careful about that model, as particularly students in Rinpoche <coughs> have had to be. I mean, from the very beginning, uh, when he came here and he was drinking heavily, having had his foot rearranged because of an accident, and mm-hmm. uh, we decided that we should drink lots of Colt 45 malt liquor, and within about <laughs> three days we realized we weren't going to be his students for much longer because we'd be dead. Yeah. So... Um, there was that kind of learning process, which I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who hear rumors about Trungpa Rinpoche don't realize how much discipline and how much teaching he was doing all along the mm-hmm. way, and how from the very first he made it very distinct. That you, what's the expression about? I can't remember, but it has to do with not judging. Uh, well, anyway, I, mm-hmm. it's something to do with dogs. But something <laughs> <laughs> to do with dogs. I can't remember what it was, but it has to do with not uh, basing your, uh, uh, you know, if you're a dog, don't try to be a lion. 
That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not imitating the teacher when you don't have the chops to be able to handle yeah. that kind of life. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But I, I think it, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, yeah. if you are involved with the teacher like that, you know, it's uh, on one hand extremely dangerous, but extremely valuable too. Mm -hmm. And there's the crux of the matter when you go from the Mahayana Bodhisattva to the Vajrayana Bodhisattva, if you want to make a distinction mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. where somebody is operating on a standard of crazy wisdom, they're completely authentic and straightforward every moment, and that's the learning process. Mm -hmm. But if it gets interpreted as, as, as a mode of behavior that, gets, that leads to licentiousness, then obviously the implication could be even more destructive mm -hmm. the learning process. Mm. Yeah, sense. I mean, as from what I've heard of Trungpa Rinpoche, he was very careful with his disciples, and he treated different... I mean, he's the one who told Pema Chodron to become a, a, a nun, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's thanks to him that she... He and the Karmapa, I guess. Yeah. We, we had, uh, if you haven't any more questions, we had this idea that we might finish this um, weekend by reciting the, uh, reading together the 10th chapter of the Way of the Bodhisattva as a dedication. I don't know if, uh, don't unless, have unless we have more to say. Do you have more to say? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have it memorized? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I have it here. Um, yeah, how many people have the blue book? The blue book? Well, I think we better read the red book, right? So if Maybe you could share with the. Mm. I, I don't think there are that many differences. Um, and the. Um, you know that line in uh, stanza 30? about women. <laughs> I, uh, well, no, I mean, the, the intention was good, <laughs> even if you don't, if you don't like it. The, uh, what, I, what I wanted to say is that I think even though what Shantideva said was, may all women become men, what I think he, is may, what he, what I think he meant was, uh, may men and women be equal. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's saying that they should be like men or anything like that, but that they should have the same advantages and the same strength. So you could take it as you know, what Judy's just been saying about the, you know, the place of women in Buddhism. It's, it is not uh, satisfactory, so it has to be improved. And so this, you could use this as a dedicated... You know, I just wanted to uh, add one thing yeah. in terms of just food for thought. Right. This is an issue in, for me in thinking about Buddhist ethics. And it's, it's a, a question of the emphasis on the individual behavior, but then the, the, the question is a structural mm. uh, on, on ethics. Mm. It doesn't seem to be addressed as much. So it's just food for thought. You know, there's... A lot of individuals can be trying to do the right thing, and meanwhile, there's participating in a in a structure or a culture that is doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of then, what is the responsibility, and when it, when is the ethics require you to go beyond just being a good person <laughs> to mm -hmm. 
to, to, to looking at these bigger issues. And it's just a question, I don't have an answer. Okay. <laughs> it's page 163. Uh, yeah, and that book. By all the virtue I have, I have now, now amassed, amassed by, composition by composition of this, this book, which speaks of entry to the Bodhisattva way, may every being tread the path to Buddhahood. May, May beings everywhere who suffer, torment in their minds and bodies, have by virtue of my merit, joy and happiness in boundless measure. As long as they may linger in samsara, may their joy be undiminished. May they taste of unsurpassed beatitude in constant and unbroken continuity. Throughout the spheres and reaches of the world, in hellish states as many as there are, May all beings who abide there taste the bliss and peace of Sugarvati. May those caught in the freezing ice be warmed, and from great clouds of bodhisattvas, torrents rain in boundless streams to cool those burning infernal fires. May forests where the leaves are blades and swords become sweet groves and pleasant woodland glades. And may the trees of miracles appear supplanting those upon the hill of Shalamuli. And may the very pits of hell be sweet with fragrant pools all perfumed with the scent of lotuses and lovely with the cries of swan and goose and waterfalls so pleasing to the ear. May fiery coals turn into heaps of jewels, the burning ground become an even crystal floor. May crushing hills become sublime abodes offering temples, dwellings of the Buddhas. May the hail of weapons, lava, fiery stones become henceforth a rain of flowers, and all the mutual woundings, the sharp blades, be now a rain of flowers thrown in play. And those engulfed in fiery vaitarani, their flesh destroyed, their bones bleached white as kunda flowers, May they, through all my merit strength, have godlike forms and sport with goddesses in Mandakini's peaceful streams. What fear is it, they'll ask, that grips the henchmen of the deadly lord, the frightful vultures and the carrion crows? What noble strength is it that brings us joy and drives away all dreadful night? And looking skyward, they will see the shining form of Vajrapani. Then may their sins be quenched in joy, and may they go to him. And when they see the seething lava flood of hell, extinguish in a rain of blossoms, drenched in fragrant streams, at once fulfilled in bliss, they'll ask, How can this be? May then the denizens of hell behold the one who holds the lotus. Friends, throw away your fears and quickly gather here. For who is it who comes to us to banish dread, this gleaming youth with bound up hair, this loving bodhisattva saving and protecting every being, whose power leaves all pain, bestowing joy? Behold the hundred gods who lay their crowns before his lotus feet, the rain of flowers that falls upon his head, his eyes moist with compassion, the splendor of his house that echoes praises of a thousand goddesses, 
May those in hell thus cry on seeing Manjugosha. And likewise, through my roots of virtue, seeing bodhisattvas like Samantabhadra, free from stain, those clouds of bliss all laden with the cooling scented rain, may all those languishing in hell come now to perfect joy. And may the stooping animals be freed from fear of being preyed upon each other's food. And may the famished spirits have such joy as those who dwell within the northern continent. And may they be replete and satisfied by streams of milk that pour from noble Avalokitesh's hands. And bathing in it, may they be refreshed and cooled. And may the blind receive their sight. And may the deaf begin to hear. And women near their time bring forth like Maya Devi, free from all travail. And may the naked now be clothed, and all the hungry eat their fill. And may those parched with thirst receive pure waters and delicious drink. May the poor and destitute find wealth, the haggard and the careworn joy. May those now in despair be whole in mind, endowed with sterling constancy. May every being ailing from disease be freed at once from every malady. May every sickness that afflicts the living be holy and forever absent from the world. May those who go in dread have no more fear. May captives be unchanged and not set free. And may the weak receive their strength. May living beings help each other in kindness. May travelers upon the road find happiness no matter where they go. And may they gain, without the need of toil, the goals on which they set their hearts. <coughs> may those who put to sea in boat or ship attain the ports that they desire, and may they safely come to shore and sweet, sweet reunion with, with their kith and kin. May, may those who lose their way and wander in the wild find fellow travelers and save from threat of thieves and savage beasts. May they be tireless in their journey light. May children and the aged and all those without protection wandering in the fearful pathless waste who fall asleep unconscious of their peril have pure celestial beings as their guardians. May all be freed from states of bondage. May they be possessed of wisdom, faith, and love with perfect sustenance and conduct. May they always have remembrance of their former lives. May everyone have unrestricted wealth just like the treasury of space, enjoying it according to their wish, without a trace of harm or enmity. May beings destitute of splendor be magnificent and bright, and those who suffer from deformity acquire great beauty and protection. May all the women of the world attain the strength of femininity. May the lowly come to excellence, the proud and haughty lose their arrogance. And thus, by all the merit I have gained, may every being living on the side abandon all their evil ways, embracing goodness now and evermore. From bodhicitta may they never separate and constantly engage in bodhisattva actions. May they be accepted as disciples by the Buddhas, drawing back from what is demons' work. And may these beings, each and every one, Enjoy an unsurpassed longevity, living always in contentment. May the very name of death be strange to them. 
in all the ten directions and on every side, may groves of wish-fulfilling trees abound, resounding with the sweetness of the teachings spoken by the Buddhas and their Bodhisattva heirs. And may the earth be wholesome everywhere, free from boulders, cliffs, and chasms, flat and even like a level palm, and smooth like lapis lazuli. For many circles of disciples, may multitudes of bodhisattvas live in every land, adorning them with every excellence. From bird songs and the sighing of the trees, from shafts of light and from the sky itself, may living beings, each and every one, perceive the constant sound of Dharma. And always may they come into the presence of the Buddhas and meet with bodhisattvas, offspring of the same, with clouds of offerings unbounded, may the teachings of the world be worshipped. May kindly spirits bring the rains on time for harvests to be rich and plentiful. May princes rule according to the Dharma. May the world be blessed with all prosperity. May medicines be full of strength. May secret words of power be chanted with success. May spirits of the air that feed on flesh be kind, the mind be viewed with pity. May beings never suffer anguish. May they not be sick nor evilly behave. May they have no fear nor suffer insults. Always may their minds be free from sorrow. In monasteries, temples, and the like, May reading and reciting widely flourish. May, May harmony prevail among the Sangha. May its purposes be all fulfilled. May ordained monks and nuns intent upon the practice find perfect places for retreat and solitude, abandon every making thought, and meditate with trained and serviceable minds. May nuns have all their wants supplied. May quarreling and spite be strange to them. Let all who have embraced monastic life uphold a pure and unimpaired observance. May those who take their discipline repent, and always may they strive to cleanse away their faults, and thus may they acquire a fortunate rebirth wherein to practice stainless discipline. May wise and learned beings be revered and always be sustained by arms. May they be pure in mind. And may, and may their, their fame spread far and wide. May, may beings never languish in the lower realms. May pain and hardship be unknown to them. With, with bodies, bodies greater than the gods, may they, may they attain enlightenment without delay. May beings time and time again make offerings to all the Buddhas. And with the Buddhas unimagined bliss, may they enjoy undimmed and constant happiness. May all the Bodhisattvas now fulfill their high intention for the sake of wanderers. May sentient beings now obtain all that their guardians wish for them. And may the hearers and the Pratyeka Buddhas gain their perfect happiness. Until, through Manjushri's perfect kindness, I attain the perfect joy. May I remember all my lives and enter into the monastic state. Thus may I abide sustained by simple ordinary fare, and in every life obtain a dwelling place in perfect solitude. Whenever I desire to gaze on him or put to him the slightest question, may I behold with unobstructed sight my own protector, Manjigosha, to satisfy the needs of beings dwelling in the ten directions to the margins of the sky, May I reflect on all my deeds the perfect exploits of Manjushri. And now, as long as space endures, 
as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain, to drive away the sorrows of the world. The pain and sorrows of all wandering beings, may they ripen wholly on myself. May the virtuous company of bodhisattvas always bring about the happiness of beings. May the doctrine only cure for sorrow, source of every bliss and happiness, be blessed with wealth, upheld with veneration, and throughout a vast continuance of time endure. And now, to Manju Gosha, I prostrate, whose kindness is the wellspring of my good intent, and to my virtuous friends I also bow, whose inspiration gave me strength to grow. Thank you very much.